Rabbi Yehuda Aryeveh Alter was born in 1847 into an industrious, or illustrious Hasidic family of scholars and leaders, which was part of the Polish Jewish aristocracy. His father, Rabbi Abraham Mordechai, died when he was relatively young, and he was largely raised by his grandfather, the famed Rabbi Yitzchak Meir of Ger, better known as Chidushe Harim, or Rabbi Meir, as he was known to everyone in Warsaw. He was a Talmudist of great renown. But Rabbi Yehuda Aryeh came to serve as a Rebbe at a very young age, becoming the leader of the Gareth Hasidic community in 1871 and remaining at its helm until his death in 1905. He was also a masterful and well-known Lambda, even in his youth, and he authored an important commentary to many volumes of the Talmud. Anyone ever used Svas uh, Emes on Shas? There are a couple of, uh, of tractates, for example, Shabbat, where to really understand it, the Svatimet actually opened up new vistas. There's a joke about him in his youth. Uh, he was known as a somewhat precocious young man. And they asked him, you know, I, I heard you know all of Shas. And he said, no, I actually only know half of it. To which they said, OK, so which half do you know? And he said, whichever one you want. <laughs> That's Kultzka humor. But the mainstay of his theology is not actually his chidushim on Shas, his Talmudic commentaries, but his public sermons. And across 30 years, he developed themes and images, often returning to them year after year with new insights and different emphases. In these homilies, it's interesting that he cites his grandfather nearly all of the time. Now, the Chidushe Abrim was a disciple of the Kozhen and Zermagid, Reb Simcha of Shisha, and eventually the Talmud Chaver, or the close disciple, but also a colleague of the Kotzka Rebbe. Has anyone ever heard of the Chidushe Abrim? You people, Simcha Bunim of Shisha? Good. Kaltzka Rebbe? He. We all know. So there's a story about the Chidushe Arem Rebbe Yitzhimayr of Gur, who was a disciple of the Koshen and Zermagid, and at that point, the Koshen and Zermagid died, and when your Rebbe dies, you look for a new teacher. So he went to the second Koshen Rebbe, who was then the son, who was known for many wonderful things, but not exactly um, a Talmudic scholar. When he walked into the Beit Midrash, Koshnitzer Rebbe at this point got up and pinched him on the cheek. The ran out the door saying, I don't need a Rebbe who's going to pinch my cheeks. I need a Rebbe who will tear the flesh off my bones. <laughs> and he went to the Simcha Bunim of Pshesla and eventually to the Kotzker. I think he got what he asked for. <laughs> so the immediate influence on the Spas Emes' teaching was the school of Kotz, known throughout Poland for its intense intellectual demands and unflagging quest for truth and authenticity. And it seems that his grandfather um, took Rabbi Yehuda Aryeh to visit the Kotzker at some point in his youth. A visit with this fiery and illuminated figure must have left a deep impression on him, indeed. Rabbi Yehuda Aryeh theology is thus the presentation of many of the Kotzker values and ideals. However, with much less of the outright elitism and all-consuming and perhaps even self-destructive quest for purity of deed. Remember, what are the, what's the key activity that the Kutzker is doing for the, next, for the last 20 years of his life? Silence. He's, I'm sorry? Silence. Silence. He, he's alone, more or less, in his room. It seems that that quest for authenticity did indeed take its toll. But in Kutzk, you learned Rambam, you learned Shas, you learned a couple of things from medieval Jewish philosophy, but they weren't known as great mystics. They were passionate, they were devoted, they were Hasidic to the bone, but they weren't studying Zohar. 
it's interesting that the uh, Svas is a marked departure from this. So, for example, the works of the Zohar and the Maharal have a huge influence on, on uh, the Svas MS. In addition, the works of the Baal Shem Tov, the Magid of Mezrich, Rabbi Levi Yitzchak of Berdichev, and the teachings of Rabbi Ali Melech of Lezhinsk, figure who we, uh, whose theology and central place in Polish Hasidism we heard about just last week, I believe, from Rabbi Kitsis. These works figure prominently in the teachings of the Svas MS. Also, he has the deep influence of the teachings of Rabbi Shneur Zalman of Liadi, whose works on the mystical life we learned about from Rabbi Shlomo Yafi, who is, in full discretion, a teacher of mine from many years ago. Particularly relevant is Rabbi Shneur Zalman's description of the unity of being and panentheistic theology in which the entire cosmos is held within God. Arthur Green has argued that Rabbi Yehuda Aryeh the Svas was a mystic, but not really a Kabbalist, in the sense of using closed, technical nomenclature and metaphysical cosmology. His personal writings, that is the Svasemis, that were later published as the Likutim, have much more explicit reference to Kabbalah, but the descriptions of the mystical life don't seem to be explicitly Kabbalistic. Is that distinction clear to people? Kabbalah is primarily about spherot, cosmology, understanding what goes where, when I shake the lulav, these spherot align here and there. It's not necessarily about the cultivation of lived experience. If you ask a medieval Kabbalist what their religious experience was, I don't think they would know exactly what you're talking about. Chassidut, as a devotional mystical quest, is, uh, is interested in a set of different questions, which have to do with the role of the individual, the role of the individual and God, and the way that we can encounter the infinite divine light in this world. The Svas MS has a different project than Kabbalah. It's a theology of devotion and integrity, intensity and uplift, which accepts the world as it is, but seeks out the innermost kernel of divine unity and draws it into the realm of lived experience. I'll say that once more. His path is one of devotion and integrity, intensity and uplift, which accepts the world as it is, but seeks out the innermost kernel of divine unity and draws it into the realm of lived experience. Does everyone have a copy of the source sheets in front of you? Raise your hand if you're lacking one. Which the question? There's a question. Do you have a source sheet? Oh, okay. Um, can we pass some back, or do we have one for every two? Okay, thanks, Jim. The plan for what we're going to do this evening is to look at that thesis statement that I put out in front of you and see how it's manifest actually in the teachings of the Svas MS, to read them carefully and to understand what it is over the course of these three generations that he's trying to accomplish for his disciples. The first passage here, does everyone have it in front of them? Under discovering intimacy, wells and palaces. Everyone's got it? Great. I'll read it together in Hebrew. We're not going to read everything together. There's a lot here. What we're going to do is dip into the text from time to time in order to be able to articulate our point. Everything will be translated into English, so have no fear if that's your first language. <coughs> Bamidrash. Everyone's with me? Ra'a bira doleket. Somebody saw a palace, that is, something. Who sees what? It's burning. Before we get there, this is the story of Abraham, the famous Midrash of Abraham wandering around until he comes upon a palace 
That is, I'm sorry, I don't know your name. You said it was Bernie? <laughs> What's her name? Jean. Jean? You said it's Bernie. Dolek, it can absolutely mean Bernie. It can also mean that it is illuminated. illuminated. Heschel, when he quotes this, actually quotes it both ways. Biran Doleket means a palace that is on fire, it is illuminated, it can mean either of those. The Sfasemis is going to read it primarily as illuminated in the sense of it's full of beauty. Of course, the Midrash then goes on to say, Abraham says, could it be that such a beautiful world, could it be that such a beautiful palace has no one inside it, has no master? God leans out and says, here, here I am. The Nimshal, the understood, what's to be understood from this is clear. Abraham wanders around with a posture of wonder, looking at the world, saying, could it be that there is no master behind this? And God reveals himself unto Abraham. The Swasemis, if you continue with me, Shemati, Me'abi, Adoni, Zekeni, quoting here, not his father, but his grandfather, Rabbi Yechimayar of Kuro, the Fidushe Arim. Doleket can also be read as Dalakta Acharai. This is from what Jacob says to Laban when Uncle Laban is chasing him down. And he says, what have I done unto you that you should pursue me or be drawn to me in such a way? Dalakta. Shebra'ah, continuing the Svas Emes. Shekol ha'olam nimshach achar nekuda echad. That the entire world is drawn toward or drawn out from a single point. He has in mind here the Kabbalistic idea of the point of Chokmah, the supernal element of wisdom within everything that uh, is the beginning point of the story of Genesis. But for the Sfas Emes, this notion of an inner point that exists within everything is going to be key. It is the sacred point of inwardness that dwells within all and gives all life. Now there's a paradox here. It's infinitesimally small, and yet contains within it the potential for the infinite. It's a minute, sublime nexus in the physical through which one steps into the presence of the experience of God. He then continues, as it says in the Zohar Kadosh, and then moving on, Shekol davar kiyumo habitul ve'adibuk nema shelamala ad shekoba el hanekuda ha'ami tit me'ashemit barav. If you have a pen, underline the word Mekuda and underline Amitit. Mekuda is a key word for him, as I said. Amitit, everything is drawn upward, or we might say inward, to this very point, which is, of course, the divine that is in everything and within everything. It's the true point, or the point of trueness. This word should set off alarm bells. MS. We'll get there in just a minute, maybe 45 minutes when I talk about the title of the book. But that's key for him. Why? For his teacher, and for his grand teacher, the Kotzker, everything is about the search for integrity. Everything is about the search for authenticity. Everything is about the search for MS. Truth. Now, it's interesting, uh, Heschel makes a point that the Kotzker Rebbe, in the traditions that he had, never used the word emet or emes in the Hebrew. He would use what was Yiddish, which is also partially German, vorheit, which is reality or that which is. Something that's not a castle in the sky, but something that really is grounded. This is a very important thing for their lumdus, as we'll talk about in just a few moments as well. So this point, 
Kol is the point of divine wisdom, maybe even God, that lies within every physical thing. So tell me now, what's Abraham's journey? He's wandering around, he sees a illuminated palace, maybe a palace on fire, and knows then that there's something deeper to the world around him. The deeper secret is everything is drawn toward and drawn from this innermost divine unity that gives life to all. He wanted to see this. He wanted to understand it. How is it that it gives life to all of these things? How things can be divided, or at least experienced as divided things, even in this world, they are actually united within them. In other words, the great question of Kabbalah and the great question of Hasidism is, if God's really in everything and uniting everything together, why is ours a world of multiplicity and distinction? One answer, as we'll see in just a minute, is the Kabbalistic mythos of Tzimtzum, where the God, that God has withdrawn some of the divine presence. Here, he hasn't used that language, although it's in the background, he's saying something different. It is true that everything is distinct. It is true that there are differentiations between people, between moments, between physical objects, but at the end of the day, in the heart of hearts, everything is united by this single innermost point. This is Abraham's quest. Not after philosophical monotheism, not after simply the service of God, but after a deeper, under, deeper understanding of the nature of the universe. The Aliyadeh, now keep with me here, Hapitul, through his self-abnegation, through his total devotion, through which command of Lechlecha, of go forth from your land, Zacha Lirota. The Bitul here is a very important Hasidic concept that goes all the way back to the time of the Mahid of Mesrach, if not before. How does one attain mystical consciousness? How does one attain a deeper understanding of the universe? Like the Sufis taught, a window with a smudge on it, you don't see through, you just see the window. But if you have erased all of the uh, detritus on the window, you can see all the way through. So too is it with the human soul. The more you rub away the ego, the more the divine light permeates in and permeates through. Now you might say, does that mean that I have to leave my own self behind? God create me in a certain way? For the Hasidic master, this is actually a very important point. There are more extreme forms of Bitul where it really is about total distinction of the self. For many, including the Svatimet, this means to stand not as nothing, but as the fullness of who you are before the divine, not leaving any part of, uh, any part of you behind, but with no ego, and with no pride and no arrogance. And in that, you can come to stand before God. So this is Abraham's answer to Lech Lecha. Vechen, gam, ata, even now, be, somebody open this Roche table for me, shin, kuf, Shabbos, koidesh. This is going to be a huge theme in this Vasemis. You can underline that one too. Heschel's book, The Sabbath, anyone here read that? 
is perhaps the best translation of the Svasemis into English. <laughs> Everything in that book, or at least many things in that book, could actually be footnoted to either passages or at least broad ideas in the Svasemis. We'll actually see him use the phrase, almost, a palace in time. So now, we're not Abraham. We don't have that same mystical quest. We don't often get to see that same nekuda. But what is our point? <clears throat> through which we can come to experience that. Shabbat Kodesh, or Shabbos Kodesh, Shikol Adam Mashlich Kol Inyanei Achol, when you get rid of your ordinary concerns, Umekabela Letzmol Ol Malchut Shamayim, you take off your ordinary concerns and adorn yourself in the concerns of heaven. This is the way that we can come to stand into the presence of the divine. Now, I'm gonna skip one line to the question of the Ramban, and we're not going to read this inside because I want to quote it to you um, and then move on. He points out very interestingly that um, God speaks to Abraham and says, Lechlecha, but before then, there's not anything clearly in the biblical text that makes Abraham so great. You might say, he was already on his way to Eretz Canaan, right? But who's bringing him? His father, right, is bringing him along. We don't know that much about Abraham. The Zohar answers this question in an interesting way. It says, Lech Lecha was not delivered to Abraham and spoken directly to him. Lech Lecha was a global call. It was being broadcast at every moment and in every place. But only one person was attuned to be ready to answer it. Right? Like the Mishnah, that there's a voice that comes out every day from Chorev. So too, Lech Lecha. Go forth, go into yourself, as the Hasidic masters read it, lech lecha, is a call unto all of humanity, but only one person had the courage to answer it. I want to move to the next text. The Nikuda is going to be very important for understanding the Svasemis' global theology, but there's another metaphor that we find all throughout the Svasemis, and particularly in the stories of, of Genesis, for obvious reasons, and that is... How does one get to the nikuda that is with anything, within everything? Same way that you get to water in the ground. You dig into a, or you dig a, a well. That's how we find the source of life in the water. So he says, I mean, the second text from the next year, it's the second text on your page. What was it that they were doing when they were digging their wells? The story is in the Bible to come to teach us. What is it that they're piercing, and what is it that they are bringing forward? Somebody translate that for me. What are they piercing? Not just the ground, but externality, external things, they're piercing the external consciousness, and what are they going toward? Water, which is of course here understood as the hidden illumination within the ground, right? So translating into more psychological terminology, they are piercing through the external elements of the consciousness, external elements of the ego, and going forth into the deeper innermost elements where the capital S self is found. Here it's not the nekudah ha'amitit, but the, the point of inwardness. Um, 
this must have the grammar is somewhat problematic for a lot of reasons. Um, sometimes it is nikuda hapanimit, nikuda pnimiut, nikuda pnimit. Um, I'll talk about that in just a minute. But here he means the point of inwardness within all things. Now, he'll show you a little bit of his brilliance as an exegete, as an interpreter. Rechovot, one of the names, hu bechinat Shabbos Kodesh. Rechovot, name of a place, name of a well, is, he's understanding it, like in the biblical text, Yilashon, from the word of, Rahab, or expansiveness. So one of these wells is, of course, Shabbat, when every person steps into an expansive consciousness. Shibya Motachol, Right? Um, strife and contention, right? We might translate these as. In the days of the week, and I'm moving forward in the Hebrew, but translating as I go, you are engaged in strife and contention and difficult things. And on Shabbat Kodesh, what do you attain? Rest. But also, in that space of the rest, you can come to something even greater, which is an expansive consciousness where you're not involved in the sort of wiles and struggles of daily life, but you allow something to open up within you. Because you're resting. Because you're resting. That creates the space for that opening, for that op the expansion, for that well to be built. So on the days of the week, have we no access to the Nikuda? Shabbos is great, but what do we do the rest of the time? So his answer is, there is a devotion to God that by shedding your um, allegiance to the Yetzer Hara and doing uh, acts of devotion, you're able to step into that space and to uncover that Be'er at that moment, even amidst the week. One way I often like to think about this is there's two different kinds of davening. There's Shabbos davening and there's weekday davening. Weekday davening is hard. Not only are you crunched for time, but there's a kind of struggle involved in maintaining kavana, in maintaining a sense of posture and intensity and inwardness. It's hard. It's not at all easy. On Shabbat, However, and not every Shabbat, but at least the possibility exists therein, there's a kind of uplift where you don't have to struggle, not in the same way. There's a kind of open-heartedness and expansion of consciousness that comes just by dint of the day. It's not automatic, it doesn't happen every time, but there's a possibility for uplift there in a different kind of way where it's not about struggle, and it's not about fire, and it's not about getting through. It's about a kind of sublime uplift and spiritual ascent. He then goes on to say, Sitmum of Plishtim, that the Philistines filled in the wells. He means by this two things. We have this in English, a Philistine is someone who is uncouth, coarse, so he means not people, but rather uncouthness and coarseness fills in that well, which is to say the detritus falls in during the course of the week. You have to struggle to keep it out, you're bailing it out, but it's not going to work. And then all of a sudden, Shabbat comes and the well opens up. Now, 
tell me about the story of the Bible. Who digs a well? Abraham. Yitzchak. Yaakov. There are wells all over the place. Or at least he uncovers a well. Why? And it actually says that Yitzhak uh, digs out the same wells. So the Svansamus reads this in two ways, which I don't think are exactly the same. So the first is that um, that which is at one point dynamic and fresh can be filled in by road observance. Think of it this way. Has anyone ever had a new a new book, a new idea, a new practice that opened up a new vista for them. How long did it last? That's for a long time. Good, but did it last forever? <coughs> so. mm, really? You're lucky. For me, at least in my own experience, it's often that something that works for a certain period of time will at some point become almost habitual, and I'll sink back into my ordinary modes of consciousness, even though I'm doing this one thing, right? I don't know, maybe it's doing hachana for tefillah, I sit there and I'm getting ready for davening, but if I do it every day for five minutes, that itself becomes habitual, and I sink back into my old patterns of consciousness. That is sigmum aflishtim, that the ordinary things fall back into that well, and you need to redig it anew. Now think of this in historical terms. How long did it take for Hasidism say, the well of Hasidism to get filled in? Not too long, right? Who's the first? I said this to the Kolal kids, so don't say this yet. I'm sorry, Kolal fellows. Um, who's the first Neo-Hasidic Rebbe? Good. Um, almost, but there's no Hasidism before him. I mean, there's the old school Hasidism, so yes, absolutely, he's the first. But within the Hasidic movement as we understand it. Rebbe Nachman of Bratzlav, exactly. Who said that? Fantastic. Rabbi Nachman of Bratzlav, who looks around him and says, this can't be the way of the Baal Shem Tov. Where? So what? So he is a relative of the Baal Shem Tov, absolutely. And in some places he says, I'm special because I'm from, he's the great, the great grandson of the Baal Shem Tov, I believe. But he says, um, I'm special because I have this holy lineage, but on the other hand, I'm this remarkably creative uh, rabbinic figure who doesn't have any clear teachers. And um, looks at the Hasidism around me, meaning around him, and says, my uncle, Baruch of Mezhboj, has one claim to fame. It's not his learning, it's not his charismatic personality, it's the fact that he is the grandson of the Baal Shem Tov. And in such, Rabbi Nachman Ratzav begins Neo-Hasidism. What's another Neo-Hasidic movement, thinking before the 20th century? Pshiska and Kutsk that grows out of it, who rebel against what they see as the miracle-working dominated figure of Polish Hasidism and say, this can't be what the Baal Shem Tov had in mind, and in some doing so, they try and make something new. But of course, as always happens, even that fresh approach becomes stale. What you find that's so interesting about Pshiska is an awareness of that fact. The Kutzka Rebbe says, if you pray today because you prayed yesterday, you're worse than a total Russia, which of course is hyperbole, although he may have meant it. And this notion that he wasn't trying to create Hasidim, but create leaders. And he valued integrity and ingenuity because he knew that the Yetzirah also comes in the form of tradition. 
he reads all of the pasuk, the verse in, um, I believe it's in Vayikra, Al-Tifnu Ela Ovot, don't turn to the familiar spirits, actually works kind of nicely with this, um, as Al-Tifnu Elha Avos, meaning don't just do it because your parents did it, or perhaps don't do it because your parents did it. And there's an awareness there that if you do that, if you turn toward them as if they're going to save you, that too will become Hergel, Regel. It will just become the same thing. It will become rote, which is of course unconscionable because you cannot have intensity with rote. They're almost, in this, uh, 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 um, how do you say tarte de satre in English? It's impossible to hold them together. Um, Heschel writes in the name of the Kotzker, in Kotzk, we don't have frumkite, we have frischkite. <laughs> to be frum in 19th century Poland was actually a, a negative dismissal of someone's external religiosity. So how does he read, read by Yeshev Yachpor? He go, uh, Yitzchak goes back and redigs the well. So what was at times intense, fresh, dynamic, flowing, has dried up and become filled in. So that happens in one person, I believe, over time, that same dynamic plays out. But he also means from one generation to the next. If it worked for your parents, maybe it will work for you. But you have to have the authenticity to know when you're trying to bring water up from a dry well. Any questions about what I've said so far? Maybe we're against this. Um, but, like, why is Shabbos not subject to that same paragraph? Shabbos, A. Yep. Why is Shabbos not subject to the same ossification or roteness? He will tell you that Shmiran Shabbat, and we will get to this, and I don't want to reveal all my secrets at the beginning, is not to keep Shabbat, <coughs> but to hold that consciousness in an intensified and intentional way. To be Shomer Shabbos for these Vazemes is to hold on to that and to think about it and to be intentional. It's not automatic, even Shabbos. But on the other hand, there is something that even stepping into the sacred time of the Sabbath does happen and peels away all those layers of externality, at least if you're open to that process happening. But it won't happen on its own. You need to be there, at least partially. Does he believe that Shabbos is ontologically different than other days, or it's just experientially different because we make it so? Can you have Shabbos on Tuesday? Can you? That's the question. Yes. Um, he believes it's different. I really think that for him, Shabbos doesn't come on Tuesday. He will tell you, however, that if you keep Shabbat, it will transform your Tuesday with a nikuda of Shabbos consciousness. Listen. Yes. So one of them is within the person. That is to say, I get a new safer, I don't know, the Sasemis, and all of a sudden it's the most amazing thing. My world is transformed. But I read a hundred of those drashos, I read two hundred of those drashos, and after time the impact of that becomes diminished. The other, the second, which I think is not exactly the same, which is over generations, what works for one generation won't necessarily work for the second. Yeah, I think you, I think you kind of dropped out of explaining um, his, his work strategy for whole 
because it's, it's actually very clearly articulated both in the Zohar and the Tanya as the result of pushing back against one's ego and one's desires is that one actually, one actually can expect to, by virtue of doing that, step into great life. It's a strategy for illumination from beyond oneself. Mm -hmm. I think that's exactly right, which is to say... Yeah, he does. He says that when you are nevatel, when you nullify your own petty desires before God, even amongst the weekday, you can step into great light, as you so beautifully put it. He absolutely means that. So what does he mean by that? He means fighting against roadness. He means fighting against self-interest. He means fighting against the petty things that we do to get back of other people, and he means the kind of uplift that comes from getting beyond the smallness of the ego. Is that what you had in mind? Yeah, you know if you're doing it because something has shifted. Something has transformed. You know if you're doing it. Fantastic. Now on Shabbat, that then comes to a head and is combined with the openness of heart that comes with the Sabbath and the extra soul, which for him is not a metaphysical thing, but an infusion of energy that aids you in that process. Thank you very much. Um, in both of these teachings, MS, Emmet, or the Nikuda, or the call of Lechlecha, is already there and present in the world. Did you notice that? We just need to attune ourselves, to attune our ears, or to get busy digging to be able to find it. The call is going out, the well is waiting to be dug, the potential is already there. The nikuda is present, omnipresent indeed, within all and within all things. The point is, it's a transformation of paradigm and a transformation of consciousness that allows us to find what is already there. For the Kotzker, he says that MS is everywhere and no one's bothering to pick it up. It's just lying on the ground and everyone has their eyes attuned in the sky. Now what he means by that is people are rolling around in mystical ecstasy and have no connection to the ground. I want to continue on. Turn your paper, your packets over. Um, you'll see two things. We're not going to read them in Hebrew. We're going to read it actually in English. Um, this is a letter that the Spas MS writes to a friend of his. Now, what's interesting about letters is sometimes you say things more explicitly in private communications than you're willing to say in a public forum. It may be both. One is oral, I'm addressing lots of people right now, but even though it's written and it's more enduring, there might be something that I'm willing to say, one person to another, that I won't say in a public forum. Now it might be just a matter of emphasis or articulation or intensity or clarity. I don't think there's anything here that contradicts what we find in this class as a written book, but this is a letter from his own hand that wasn't published until later. I'm going to ask for some audience participation and ask someone to read, since most people would be loud enough for everyone to be able to hear. Someone raise your hand and volunteer, or I'll call on one of my hapless students. You can read it in English or in French or whatever you want. It's written in Hebrew. We're going to be reading enough Hebrew. I want to move forward and also read some things in English. Mitchell, thank you. Since. Since most people do not understand how to leap up and attach themselves to God, I shall reveal to you what I know about it in a forthright manner. The proclamation of oneness that we declare each day in saying, Hear, O Israel, and so forth, 
really needs to be understood as it truly is. That which is entirely clear to me, not from hearsay, but based on the holy writings of great Kabbalists, I am obliged to reveal to you in order that these matters be clear. This is a great line. Um, most people don't understand. Here he says, um, You might want to translate that as the leap of faith. Somewhat anachronistically, but not totally. So Mitchell, what do you think he's saying here? <laughs> most people don't understand this, so must, you must. He says, I'm going to reveal this to you. This is a part of a very long teaching about Pesach and about the sort of um, liberation of the moment of leaving Mitzrayim, of leaving Egypt, where everything is opened up in a way that you haven't earned, but it just sort of expands in front of you. Then you go through the seven weeks of the Omer and work very hard to reclaim what you had on that moment of Pesach until you are returned to that same level. When? On Shavuot. And you reattain that. The metaphor that I often give for my students is um, the forging of a samurai sword. Anyone ever seen how that's done? Um, you hammer it out, and then you fold it back on itself. And then you hammer it out, and you fold it back on itself. Which is to say, you move forward, and then you move back, and you move forward, and you move back. And as you do so, the metal becomes stronger and stronger. The lessons become more and more integrated, because that which comes in a flash is gone in a flash. But that which you attain over time is qualitatively different for the way that it integrates into you. So here he says, Shema Yisrael is something different than the way that most people understand it. Bracketing what you know about Chassidut, how would you understand the Shema as classically understood? A declaration of monotheism, a declaration of God's oneness and unity. Okay, so far, so good. It's interesting, Mitchell, here that he says, not something that I know from hearsay, it's not a rumor. What does he know it from? Great Kabbalists. Great um, and he feels an obligation to tell this to this other person. Who does he have in mind when he's talking about the Great Kabbalists? I think here you can actually identify a source. Um, it's the Tanya. Yeah. Um, the Tanya really is behind much of the Svas Emes, except for two things. One, his relationship to non-Jews. The Svas Emes has a very different articulation of that particular element of the Tanya. And two, the notion of the Tzadik. For the Tanya, you only have to get into the first two chapters to know that there's the Tzadik and there's everyone else. For the Svas Emes, he's a Polish Hasidic master, which means how do you become a Tzadik? Not by dint of your father, but through your merit, at least to some degree. Okay? There are old dynasties in Poland, but the Kotzker's father was not a Rebbe. The Kozhenitz or Magid's father was not a Rebbe, though he founded a dynasty. Simkobunov's um, father was not a Rebbe. Up until the late 19th century, nearly 100 years after dynasties were founded elsewhere, in Poland it was different. Rabbi Eli Melech of Lishitz, who you heard about last week, um, did you guys talk about the essence of the Tzadik and the teachings of the Noam Eli Melech? Yeah. Okay, he gets all a bad rap in Hasidism, especially in academic circles, for basically ruining it because he says the Tzadik is this and the Tzadik is that and the Tzadik can do miracles and all these other things. First of all, we have to understand, and I'm sure that Rabbi Kitz has said this, is that the book, the Noam Eli Melech, is a handbook for training other Tzadikim. It's not meant 
for popular consumption to show why the tzaddik is greater than you. It's meant to push people toward being tzaddikim. And if that's true, then the tzaddik is not an office that's inherited, nor is it something that makes you qualitatively different than everyone around you, but rather something that comes after many, many, many years of hard work. There's actually a passage in the Noah where he says, a tzaddik is someone who never forgets that his negative midot, his negative character traits, are always there and they're always barking at the door. Not that they've been eradicated, not that they'll never come back, but the tzaddik is someone who is ever mindful of that. It's what the, perhaps the Tanya would call a bainon. It's an interesting moment in the history of Hasidism. So, so when he says the great Kabbalist, he's talking about the Altarebi and... Yeah. I think he really and has then, in mind the Altarebi here, yeah. because remember, the second section of the Tanya, um, was anyone here for Rabbi Yafi's presentation? So he, he actually looked at that section of the Tanya, and the beginning of that section says, this is an explanation of the mystical understanding of the Shema. Okay. I don't know if you looked at that particular passage, but he, that's what the, the Balatanya says. That it's a, an exploration of what he calls lower unity and upper unity. Lower unity meaning even in this world, upper unity meaning in the highest moments of mystical consciousness. How you can retain both of those. That's really the point of the second, um, the second, the second, uh, um, the second book of the Tanya. Okay, someone else, Mitchell, you did a great job, but I'll pass the buck. This is it. Kevin, thank you. <laughs> um, Read louder. This is it. The meaning of Yud-K, Vav-K is one that he is not the only God, negating other gods, though this too is true. But the meaning is deeper than that. There is no being other than him. This is true, even though it seems otherwise to most people who understand such things for there are countless feelings about these matters. Okay, good. So what is he saying? That there is only one God is not a statement of divine numbers, but rather... Sorry? The unity of the universe, of the cosmos, of everything. Meaning, ain't owed milvado, he doesn't employ that here, but we know it from Bari, there is nothing else besides God, means not only that there is only one God, but rather that there is nothing else besides God. This, for the Hasidic masters, is self-understood. If you told this to someone like Maimonides, who uses that in a very different way, I think you might beg to differ. Surely there are, as he says, countless feelings on these matters. What do you think he means by it's not obvious? It may seem otherwise. Cole? I just have a question about Yeah? Is this about Maimonides? No, no, no. 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 Okay. <laughs> When he says that there's nothing other yeah. than God, but what does he literally mean? He means what he says in the first teaching we looked at, which is namely that the nekuda pnimit or nekuda of pnimiut exists within all things, all people, all moments, equally, and that there's a divine essence or nature that lives within all elements of the cosmos, so that God is suffusing the world at every moment and in everything. There is nothing outside of the divine. Panentheistic, because God is expansive and beyond the cosmos as we have it, but that's what he means. Is that clear, more or less? It's a big idea. So how does the Shema get us there? Um, Kevin, keep reading. The content is as follows. Content is as follows. Everything that exists in the world 
spiritual and physical, is God himself. It is only because of the concentration... Contraction. Tim, contraction. But tzimtzum in medieval and rabbinic Hebrew also can mean to intensify or to <laughs> concentrate in a single place. <laughs> That's actually important because the nikuda is, on the one hand, this tiny little point, but on the other hand, it's an intensification of infinity within the finite. Exactly. Nice work. Your check's in the mail. <laughs> <laughs> that was God's will. Blessed be he and his name. That holiness descend, descended rung after rung until physical things were formed out of it. So the intensity of the divine will was mitigated or mediated, rung after rung, level after level, until you come to the physical world, which does not mean that the physical world is divine, divine, devoid of God's glory. On the contrary, it means that the physical world is, although we perceive it as a matter of individuated identity, that is, at the end of the day, but an illusion. It might be a great, wonderful illusion that allows for free choice and agency and a partnership in creation, as you'll see in just a minute. God actually wants it to be this way, as he said, and we'll see why in just a moment. But it is, at the end of the day, ultimately an illusion. If everything is God, then how is idolatry possible? So the Baal Shem Tov was actually asked that question. Um, and they asked him in a much, um, much more unkind way, or uncharitable way. They said, why, um, why is idolatry bad? And does idolatry have a divine element as well? So he says, yes. But what he says is, if everything has God, and we have free choice, that the energy could be applied in different ways. I can use the divine energy within my soul for good things or for terrible things. This is partially an answer to evil as well. Idolatry is one way, evil is another. Evil is a mankind, man-made product that is the misapplication of that divine energy. God doesn't choose those things for me. I may have God within, my speech, may be the unfolding of the divine word, capital W, which is what these mystics say, but that God doesn't choose my words for me. And I can use my words to help and to heal, or to harm and to fracture. These things, someone else, turning the page on the page two, I was very happy that I was able to put both the Drisha logo and the page number, something that I hadn't succeeded in doing up until this point. <laughs> These things are true. Noah. These, thi <clears throat> These things are true without a doubt. Because of this, every person can attach himself to God wherever he is through the holiness that exists within every single thing, even corporeal things. You only have to be negated in the spark of holiness. In this way, you truly bring about a sense in upper worlds, causing true pleasure to God. A person in such a state lacks for nothing for he can attach himself to God through whatever place he is. This is the foundation of all the mystical formulations of the world. Even though it can be treated at great length, as it is in the thousands of pages of explanation written in various books, we need not go on about it now. In my opinion, my brief words suffice. If you study the matter, you will see that it is as I say, and this is the essence of human worship. So here he carries things forward. He makes a very certain statement and then he says, every person can attach himself or herself to God wherever they are. He means in whatever they are doing, but also in whatever place they are. This is 
Cole, in answer, or at least building on, on the question that you asked, one of the great opportunities that comes along with divine panentheism. Avodah begash mute, or serving God even through ordinary moments, physical deeds. Mitzvot are one example of that. When I perform the commandments, I am serving God with the physical world. But it's not only the commandments, but rather anything or any moment can be an opportunity to serve God. You have to be negated. Remind me of your name? Shmuel. Shmuel, right. Um, so Shmuel pointed out that during the days of the week, this bitul or this self-abnegation is the key for allowing that to shine through. And again, he reinforces that notion here, that when you move aside your petty concerns in performing the mitzvot, something else can shine through, bringing about an ascent in the upper worlds and causing great pleasure to God. Here, he's actually saying something quite powerful. Um, he says that this is the essence of mystical formulation or mystical worship. He says in Hebrew it's kola yichudim. What are yichudim in Kabbalistic language? You guys ever used a Kabbalistic sitter? Um, a great example of this is the Siddur of um, Rabbi Shalom Sharabi or the Rashash, um, who uh, uh, his Siddur for the weekday is three volumes. Um, the Shafrit one is like 300 pages, and the, just the Amidah is like 100 pages. Everything, every word, every um, praxis is accompanied by letter permutations, adjustments of the spheroids, visualization exercises. They even have a color-coded version now, which is very, uh, very useful. Um, this takes an extraordinary amount of time and an extraordinary amount of concentration. The relationship to the Yehudim, or this sort of intensely Kabbalistic praxis in Hasidism, is actually very complicated. Because on the one hand, the Rebbes are using these same sort of Kabbalistic things, because that's what pietists do. And on the other hand, if I give it to an average person, what are they going to do with it? They're going to be crushed under the weight of it, and it won't be possible for them to pray. So what you have in Hasidism is, you know, forgive me for oversimplification, a turn away from Kavanot and a turn toward Kavanah. Kavanot with a capital K, a strict understanding of the Lurianic or the Zoharic sense of this does this and this does that, and toward Kavanah in an intentional devotional sense. The Yehudim is the same thing. Yehud for the Kabbalists means uniting the spirit in a certain very technical way. For Shafarit it looks one thing, for all the different parts of the Shafarit service it's unique, and then there's the mental service, etc., etc., etc. There's all these Yehudim for eating breakfast afterwards. It's a very complicated thing. For the, for the Hasidic masters, Yehud means a, an alignment and a unification of presence and deed. What I'm physically doing and where my mind is. When you're talking to someone and you're on your smartphone, it's the opposite of that. When you're having a communicative moment with another human being and you are intentionally there, that is a moment of Yehud. When you are davening and there's no part of you that's straight, that is a Yehud. So the Yehudim in the Kabbalistic sense, of course, are true, and of course they'll be done on their own. It just happens. The, um, the Yehud that is primary in the consciousness of the Hasidic masters is bringing about that alignment of presence and action. Doesn't it really mean unification? Unification, yeah, but what's being unified? What? Well, it seems like just in plain Buddhism, that's the goal, just to be present 
but this means something more. Well, we are a theistic. Yeah, we are a theistic system after all. So the Yehud, good. Thank you for pushing me on this. That the Yehud of presence and deed is not only a mindfulness practice, although it might be interpreted as that, that then brings you into a consciousness of the divine in that moment, by which we mean both the Ein Sof and the God of Israel. That is to say, both the infinite but also the particular God that we believe in as having a special covenant with the Jewish people. So what we do, when we become mindful through all that it means here, something is happening. Yeah, that's why it says brings yeah. great pleasure to God. But it's more than pleasure. God is also. It brings both an infusion of divine light into the self and into the world, as well as a flood of divine pleasure up above. So it's an important distinction from Buddhism. Thank you very much for uh, for fleshing that out. Absolutely. Yep. And of course, the importance of the mitzvot here as specific deeds. Now, you should hopefully at least have caught some sort of attention in between this. On the one hand, Shabbat, and Joe, you pointed this out, Shabbat is sacred, but are the days of the week also sacred? The mitzvot are holy, but are also other deeds holy? We're going to see that in just a minute, because he's well aware of this same tension. Yeah, Shmuel? Yeah, I, I sort of, I'm pointing myself into a fun position of Yeah. Look, the theology in terms of the centrality of not intentionality. He's talking about that you are directly aware of life. The direct the direct experience you're not thinking about yourself at all. The direct yeah. The direct experience of God is something that is very, very clearly at the forefront of uh, of the Svasemis. That's why when Art says he's a mystic but not a Kabbalist, he's entirely right. So I want to continue on and now discuss this issue of distinction and continuity. Um, the answer for the Svasemis comes through a tripartite structure of Olam, Shana, and Nefesh, which we might define as Olam, space, Shana, time, and Nefesh, soul. Now you're going to see that these are um, interlocking circles or interlocking points because you'll get soul time, soul space, um, time space, and all the different versions therein. Um, the first text we're not going to read inside, you have it in English um, uh, uh, before you. But what I do want to point out is in the third line, he says that everything in creation has space, time, olam, shana, and nefesh. And then he says, Bechirat olam is Eretz Israel. That is to say, the most exalted or the most chosen of space is the land of Israel, which is the innermost point of all the world. So what do you think, without having read on, is going to be the, what he calls Bechirat Azman, or the sacred time, the sacred, most sacred of time? Shabbos and I'm sorry. The messianic age. No, nope. messianic age is not all that interesting for the Svasemis, which is to say that, like many Hasidic masters, exile and redemption become states of consciousness as much as they become historical processes. So you know the Mashiach, if you did a I don't know a Bar Ilan search in the Svasemis, I don't think you'd actually come up with that many uh, with that many sources, and that's not atypical for the Hasidic canon. 
Doesn't mean that they don't believe it. Doesn't mean that they're not looking forward to that. Doesn't mean that they don't believe that everything that has happened now in a quote unquote personal redemption or messianic moment isn't going to be intensified, globalized, and spread out in the messianic time. But it does mean that's not the focal point of their avodah. Yeah, I don't know your name. Is that Israel is, is metaphorical as well as a concrete place? Say your name, please. I'm sorry? Sylvia. Sylvia? Um, metaphorical? Yeah, it is. Meaning that when he says, we don't have a text in front of the, you that says this, but he says this elsewhere, that Zion, Zion is a Zion, a marking point or a, uh, a signpost for what holy time is. There he's reading it metaphorical, but he's also reading it physical, meaning Sion is still Sion at the end of the day. He really believes in the sanctity of Eretz Israel. He really believes in the sanctity of the Zmanim, the holy days, and of Shabbat, not to the exclusion, but to the continuum of the others. So it's metaphorical, but it's not entirely metaphorical. Um, it's metaphorical as well as real. That, it's more metaphorical. It resonates. That resonates with you. with you. Yeah, I think that for a lot of people that is true. I think that for a lot of people that is true. Um, for the people who read the Sfas Emes who live in Israel, you know, there are texts like these that speak to their experience in a different way. But I think, would you agree with me in saying about the the holidays that there's a metaphorical understanding of the holiday? And it teaches us something very beautiful about the way that sacred time operates. But there's also something about stepping into the sacred time of the holiday itself that is unique. Yeah. Um, he has this beautiful thing about bringing together, this is his reading of Isruchag Ba'avosim Avodas Karnos Amizbeach, that what does it mean to bind up the holiday? Elsewhere he has this as Isruchag is what binds or brings together, it's the day after the holiday, remember, it brings together all of your work on the holiday. Um, here he's saying, what is it that brings everything together? It's not avot in the sense of um, vows, but avotot, cords or binding, uh, cords or um, um, strings, uh, ropes of love. And it is that love for the divine which binds you to sacred time and to sacred space. He has an amazing line here that he says that Hanefesh, it's the fourth line in that piece, Hanefesh mechaber hasmanim lemakom. The power of the soul is to bind time to space. What does he mean by this? Human action, through performing the mitzvot, yes, but through experiencing sacred time, and especially in Eretz Israel. Now, you might not say that this is the literal Eretz Israel, but saying creating a sacred space, you can make a nice argument for saying that a synagogue or a baby drash or a wonderful place of learning like Trisha is a similar kind of sacred space, bringing together through your service sacred time, embodying it within the self into sacred space. Mankind then becomes the nexus of these two different realms. In the next passage, he uses an incredible um, um, interpretive moment to teach us something about how things exist in continuum with one another. If Olam Shana Nefesh really occur, if they are true, and they're bound up with one another so that the temporal, the physical, and the spiritual are integrated in some way, 
then why is one particular time, one particular moment, or one particular kind of person special in any way? Does this, as the Misnagim accused the Hasidim of, flattening all religious distinctions entirely? So here, you'll see it in the final paragraph. Um, in a piece from Parashat Gudeh. He uses the principle of kol davar, and I'm reading now from the second line of the fourth paragraph of that piece, shehaya v'aklal v'yatsa v'aklal v'lamed al-aklal kulo yatsa. This is an exegetical principle that we use in determining how to define legal matters. Namely, that if something has emerged from a general rule, it comes not to only teach us something specific, but in some way to cast light on everything else included in that rule. It's a specific example to teach you something about the general. This, he says, is our example for how sacred time, sacred space, sacred people, sacred souls, teach you something about the general. So what's the example of sacred time? Shabbat and the holidays. If it was a subsumed within the call and then comes to teach you something in particular, it means that it sheds some light on that which is in continuum with everything else. So the Sabbath is the most intensified and sanctified of all days in order to teach you that there is an element of Shabbat in every day of the week. Eretz Israel, the land of Israel, is an intensification of holiness to teach you something about the inherent holiness of all space, all places. Now what's he going to say about people? He says it in two ways. About two specific kinds of people. Thinking inwardly within the Jewish people, I've already given you a hint, who do we have that have an intensified level of Kedusha? Sorry? Tzadik. Tzadik. Good. In this case he doesn't actually use that. <coughs> you don't think. No, yeah. What's that? Sorry, he actually does. So the tzaddik, um, not in the sense of an inherited office, thank you for remembering that, um, for pointing that out, that the tzaddik is there, thank you, for being able to show us that the potential for Kedusha lies within every person. Um, in the first piece and elsewhere, he says that it's the Kohanim and the Levitian, especially the Kohanim. We have priests, we have these unique people, because they are there to teach us about the inherent holiness of everyone. Now, think bigger. What's the job of Israel? Not the land, but the people? To be a light unto the nations? Thinking in these terms? To be a Mamlechus Kohanim. Good. That's exactly what he's thinking in the background of his mind. To be a nation of priests, just as the priests are holy, to teach you about the sacredness of every Israelite, so too is Israel sacred, intensified in that way, in order to teach you about the inherent sanctity of? There you go. So this is a very interesting way of resolving a classic conflict. If anyone has a universalistic tendency, or at least a universalistic notion, um, without having to abandon some sort of particular relationship with God, or a notion of a chosen people. We may not agree with his particular formulation, but it's a way of saying that there is divine omnipresence in all people, absolutely, albeit unique in its intensification within the Jewish people. Yeah, listen. Is, uh it's interesting, I think, gives me a new idea of Aurelat Dorian. Oh. Of Aura, 
good. It's a light unto the nations in the sense of like an illumination that then brings all of the other lights into resonance as well. That's a very nice way of thinking about it. Um, yeah, just one second, I want to give one example. Um, for example, when the first person ran a four-minute mile, it was assumed that it could never be done. And when that person ran the four-minute mile, I don't remember how many it was, but in that same year, how many, does anyone know how many others did it? It was like 12 or 15 or something like that. That is to say, when you meet an incredible person, or you see an incredible feat, or you enter into an incredible space, it transforms your understanding of the potential for everything else. Yeah, Sylvia, I want to hear what you have to say. Yes, uh, well, I was thinking that it doesn't necessarily have to uh, be limited to the human. It's like everything. Yeah. It's like something that you study, yeah. you know, with respect to nature, science, that you understand because you studied it. You also, he doesn't quite say it. Um, he says it about the natural world. It's very clear for him that animals also are included within the matrix of the Nikuda, or have within them the Nikuda, just like everything else has it. Um, there is no part of nature that is not an expression of the divine. It's a divine work of art as opposed to a divine machine. And it's a beautiful, ever-flowing, complicated part of the divine, uh, divine superstructure. Um, in terms of external wisdom, or like whatever you're studying, is that what you meant? Yes, I was thinking that uh, whatever it is that you study, you know, most people yeah. might not. So, because that particular thing will become more, you know, I guess your study and your, you know, that particular focus and study can oh, good. open up. I didn't understand you the first time, now I do. Exactly. When you focus on one particular field or one particular subject, the intensification of your energy in that will teach you about the expansive knowledge that you will barely touch the surface of everywhere else. And you'll understand something about the greatness of A, other scholars in that particular area, or also, very good, you'll understand something of the world as well. So I want to continue now because we have unfortunately a limited time together and lots of amazing teachings from the Sasemis. Um, you can read that one in English as well. The piece from his chapter on, or I'm sorry, the piece from uh, under the subsection of the Sabbath has some very important points. Um, I don't think we can possibly believe that he sees every day as containing the sanctity of the Sabbath in a revealed way. Um, the Sabbath is the crown jewel of the Kabbalistic calendar. Um, if you could map the Kabbalistic calendar, you would say the three, see the three days leading up to the Sabbath and the three days leading after the Sabbath, and the Sabbath would be in the middle. Shabbat is really the key. This is because it is associated with one of the divine spirits. This is because it's a day of uplift. This is a day of Yehud. It's a day of lots of other things. It's also true from a sociological perspective. When the Hasidim would get together to dance and to sing and to eat and to listen to words of Torah from the Rebbe, it was always on the Sabbath, and sometimes on the weekday, but always on the Sabbath. I want to read here the second paragraph. Everyone's with me in the paragraph that says the Sabbath? And there's a paragraph that says the Sabbath completes each thing. Um, someone read that paragraph for me. Jason. The Sabbath com <clears throat> completes each thing. Is the first, uh, finishing or... Of course, I'm just sorry. By a fellow, him by Yom that God is completing things. The Sabbath is 
a moment of completion, right? Va Shabbat, va Menucha, the Shabbat comes, and so to rest comes. Good, that's what he has in mind in terms of completion, but now it's the Sabbath, it's the finishing moment of everything. This is the finishing or fulfillment of all, since it is the root of life. On the Holy Sabbath, this root is aroused, aroused in each thing. That is why Sabbath is called rest, because it returns each thing to its root. So why are you resting? Not only in the sense of refraining from labor, not only in the sense of not going to work, but in the sense of coming home to your place of rest, to coming home to your place of rootedness. Now, of course, when he says that it returns to its source, or returns to its root, he probably means with a capital R, which is to say that it's returning back to its place in the divine. Right, the ego and all those other things that you have during the week, to some degree, are shed automatically, and especially the more that you engage with this. Good, keep going, Jason. Rashi interprets the phrase Shabbat Shabbaton to mean a tranquil rest, 